Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend, another co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, what is up? <laughs> I feel like you've asked me this one before. The ceiling yeah, is sometimes up, the it, sky is up. You know, you just it, look We're going back to the classics. <laughs> we are, we're about to go on a whirlwind cavalcade of questions on this on this episode, so I couldn't think of anything else novel to ask you at this point in time, so I went back to Old Faithful. Okay, I see. What is up mm-hmm. over there? Uh, nothing. <laughs> kind of tired. Had not that much stuff going on, just kind of winding out the new year. That's kind of the interesting thing in the corporate world is they don't give you a lot of time off, but like they don't give you a lot of stuff to do <laughs> from Christmas to like from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Like there's just like you're expected to work, but you don't have anything to work on. So it's just an interesting thing about the corporate world sometimes. So are they just like trying not to start projects or something during this time because of the breaks or why is yeah, there nothing to work on? A bunch of people are out of the office anyways, so they just save up their vacation time or they're like, oh crap, I didn't take any vacation time and it all expires at the end of the year and a bunch of people just jam it in at the end of the year. And then as soon as I would say the middle of January, the first two weeks of January are usually pretty slow too, but as soon as January kicks around, then people are like, oh shit, we should actually like start working on things again and they just leave <laughs> work. So that's been, that's been my experience at least. I see. I see. Never had a real corporate job, so. Yeah, lucky you. So you kind of said this earlier, but today we are going to answer a bunch of questions from the community, right? Yeah, we took a bunch from our patrons, uh, just the general population hanging on our Discord. That was the main focus. And then last minute, I was like, maybe I should ask people on Twitter too. And then it was like an hour before we recorded this. So we got one whole Twitter question, but it's better than zero Twitter questions. Okay, okay. And I'm going to kick us off with the first question that we got from our patrons over on the Discord channel, which was, any idea when we might do a mailbag episode? We're doing one right now. So there you go. First question answered. We're, we're killing it. We're crushing Easy. it. <laughs> do you want to handle the second question then, Michael? All right. The next question. Can I be allowed to pronounce it M-N-R, like the letters of the podcast instead of manner? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's fine. You could say the MNR cast or the MNR podcast. There are dashes in those, so maybe they meant M dash N dash R. Is that also an acceptable way to say it? If you say M dash N dash R, you might get some mm-hmm. weird looks, but I'm not going to tell you how to pronounce it. You follow your heart. Yeah, a rose that a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. So <laughs> that's what matters the most. Uh, next right. question is going to be: Do you prefer open deck lists in tournaments or hidden information throughout? What do you think, so- Michael? So this is kind of diving into like a more relevant, I don't want to say relevant, a more uh, topic-y, like normal podcast topic kind of question. So I personally think that open deck lists are, I think they're kind of a necessary evil for tournaments that are streamed. And even like late in tournaments, like teams could have like people scouting and stuff. So it's like pretty useful to have open deck lists because I think the biggest fear of not having open deck list is like an information advantage from one side because one side maybe scouted you or scouted the other side and has information that the first side doesn't have. So I am I, I think it is pretty important to have open deck list for the later stages of the tournament, like top eight of big events and even like potentially later rounds, maybe like even maybe day two should have open deck list. I'm not if if day two is the same format as day one, maybe you should have open deck list. And I think that is better overall, but I would I don't think I'd ever advocate for open deck list on day one of a tournament. Why not? 
So I think that if you don't have open necklace, then you can like put in more cheesy cards or <laughs> that's maybe a weird, weird way to say that, but like, bulls. yeah, you get, you get an advantage for bringing something that's like off the meta. So yeah, like no one sideboarded against me correctly day one because nobody knew I was going to be attacking with wounded bull and stuff. And I think that is something that is better for the game when people can like they they get rewarded for bringing something unique or something unexpected. Yeah, but even once people knew that you were on wounded bull, they still didn't necessarily know how to handle the deck, right? So even if your deck list was face up, you still would have had some amount of equity in just like having a novel deck that people weren't prepared for anyways, right? Yeah, that's true. It also um it does kind of weaken scenarios like with the starva situation where it could be like the control starva or the aggro starva and both decks you would want a sideboard like reasonably different against like i guess like from the chain seat specifically if you're if your starva opponent is trying to race you versus if they're trying to fatigue you you would love to know that ahead of time and you could probably get that from their deck list so it kind of weakens decks that can take multiple approaches because your approach is just like face up on the table and yeah but what about the argument that Ultimately, games of flesh and blood should be decided by people who are better at handling the actual games of flesh and blood, and that edges from outside of that aren't necessarily deserved or earned. Well, I think having a deck that can have a reasonable hedge hedge sideboard against decks that have multiple approaches is part of the skill of flesh and blood. Like, if you sit down against a Bolton and you don't know if they're going to raid and race you or sabers combo you, you shouldn't like you should try to have a build a plan that can like be at least reasonable into both of them i think and that is another skill that's tested in the game i guess like if you have perfect information all the time of what decks what their deck looks like then the individual games you're less likely to lose a game to something like like you, you can't lose a game to something you wouldn't expect if you see their whole deck list before the game which means that you don't have to like play around some things or try to figure out reasonings for th- why they do something different than you would normally expect. So I'm not sure that it's more skillful not having open deck lists. That's fair. I was just presenting an argument. And then again, I think like a lot of advantage you gain from like brewing something unique or bringing something that is kind of out of left field. I think that's another skill that card games specifically have always rewarded in my experience. And I think that's like a good thing to reward and encourage. Yeah. I would say the main reason I would be against it for like a big open tournament, especially like in a calling logistics, obviously <laughs> that would mean then everybody is required to fill out a digital deck list. You can't do any paper, anything like that, which would streamline it. I guess at the start of the tournament, there wouldn't have to be any like, I guess, you know, you would still have to do like the player check-in like pseudo round zero or whatever just to make sure that you're pairing the right amount of people in round one especially if like it's a draft or limited format because you want to make sure that you're not just going to have a bunch of empty seats in every draft pod Mm -hmm. but not only that so they announce pairings not only now do you have to figure out what table number you're at what hero you're playing against at that table number who you're playing against you then also have to read 80 cards and then like try to like really understand like complexities and nuances on a deck list on the fly, which I think would just lead to people just kind of like sitting down and like staring at deck lists for, you know, let's say that's like your sideboarding time at the beginning of the tournament. I think that could easily just eat up the whole five minutes of people just like really looking over and mulling over like, well, I don't know, like I want to sideboard this way now that I know that deck lists are face up. So I just think from like, 
a logistics point of view, open deck lists in Swiss rounds have a lot of things that I would be concerned about, I guess. Yeah, I I definitely get what you're saying. I think I would push back a little bit on logistics because I've had one experience with a tournament ran like this. It was a one of the Magic Pro Tours that I went to and wherever it was, somewhere in Europe. Hmm. And they I think had it was the United Kingdom, right? You, yeah. It was, yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. It was yeah, a, I know I know where you've been more than you know where you've been. <laughs> I I realized that as I was saying somewhere in Europe, and I'm like, it's too late. It's too late to go back and fix it. <laughs> so uh, it was open deck list for the constructed rounds. And the first round of constructed, we didn't get open list, but starting from round two and on of constructed, we got open deck list. And they had a period that was like a minute. I want to say a minute. It might've been two minutes, but it wasn't very long. And it was like a set amount of time. And you're like, they're like, okay, exchange deck list with your opponent. You have a minute or two minutes starting now. And then at the end of the time, they'd be like, all right, exchange deck list back, do your sideboarding and all that. And you couldn't look at the deck list after that point. And I think that like helped a lot with the, logistics and also during the player meeting each person just got a printed off version of their deck list to just like give to their opponent each round i don't know what would happen if someone lost their deck list or something like that though probably just have to get a new one printed off but i think the logistics i guess i think they would be manageable if you were certain that it was a positive to do this which i am pretty far from certain that's the case okay fair enough you want to handle the next question yeah so i'll ask you this next question and then i'll give my thoughts Sounds good. James White has appeared to you in a vision and instructed you to make a classic battles, Bolton versus Levia set. That will both be a good introductory set for new folks to get into the game while simultaneously making, making, fixing Bolton and Levia. While simultaneously fixing Bolton and Levia. Yeah, we'll clean that one up. Could you do it? Or has James White once again set you up for failure? What does yeah, that once again set it. you up for failure? <laughs> I think if we would, we, we started with the Monarch Blitz decks and... I think, did we play Bolton versus Levia? I know we did Levia versus Prism and we were like, what's the, how does Prism ever beat Levia? This is stupid. But I don't remember if we like mix a match from there. Yeah, I think we, we might've, we definitely played, we definitely played Bolton versus Chain. Yeah, I remember that one. I know we played more games of different matchups that were not Prism versus Levia. I think we we quickly decided Chain was broken and didn't play very much Chain after that. We're like, this guy's too good. We played the other guys, but I don't remember (laughs) even new players can identify that (laughs) so i don't think necessarily like a product like that would be set up to fail and especially if it's a young hero and you're able to you know like they did with dorinthia adjust like the hero ability a little bit or wanted to fix it up like there's lots of ways to adjust one or both of these heroes for like a young classic battles that would make them novel and fun to play against. So I don't think there's anything inherent about Bolton or Levia that makes them impossible to design for that. that they're just unfun and unwelcoming for new players. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, I think I'm assuming by fixing, they mean like pushing them to a more constructed level power level. Is that, I would assume so. Yeah. I, okay. They're, yeah. So, so I think like, I honestly don't think either of them are as far away as like probably the general public thinks. I think Spirit of Irina probably wasn't quite enough for Bolton, but it definitely was a good push. And like Levia didn't really get much. Most of the brute cards in the set are more aimed towards Reinar, and I don't think there's a single shadow card in the set. No. So I think I think they both just need like a couple more power cards. Because like if you look at their decks and you look at like their fifty fourth to sixtieth cards that you're presenting in every matchup, you're just like, man, these cards kind of suck. <laughs> and you just like yeah. kind of have to do that to make the heroes function and in bolton's case if they just printed you know 
nine to three more good charge cards, that could be what Bolton needs to, you know, push himself into tier one. Just because like you'll get into a game state at the end of the game with Bolton sometimes and it's just like you draw your hand of two engulfing like two bolt of courages and you're like, oh well, I'm presenting two damage, charging a card. I have no go again, no abilities to get go again, and this is my turn. So I guess I lose. <laughs> and if they just made his charge cards function a little bit better or give him some way to pump his cards a little bit easier with his hero ability, I don't know. But like he's not far off, like you said, from being a very viable hero. And in Levia's case, she just needs more ways to like, I guess, not die to her own cards. And mm-hmm. I guess just like push through a little bit more damage a little bit more consistently but i guess we'll see on that front yeah and i think like levia i mean i i think like it's just her worst cards are too bad and then her glove slot like many other heroes is pretty rough if she had a glove that like was maybe like once per game and it turned off her blood debt so like the one time that she fumbled she just like have a free like kind of buyout or something maybe that would fix it or make fix her and i don't think that would be like too complicated for a beginner set of having like a glove that turned off your hero power or turned on your hero power of turning off blood debt <laughs> somehow. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think they're both fixable. Moving on to the next question. Then uh, you were in a desert and you see a turtle flipped over on its back. You know that if you flip over the turtle, there will be another top tier linear aggro deck in the next draftable <laughs> set. If you flip the turtle over, <laughs> do you sacrifice one turtle for your happiness, Michael? I, I would flip the turtle over. I'm not even convinced that like I I'm, I, I think having top tier aggro decks or strong aggro decks is good, and it gives like new players a good deck to start with. And if there aren't high like solid viable aggro decks, I think it's like can be pretty intimidating getting into a game. And I think like a lot of people enjoy playing the aggro decks. That's why they're so popular. And I think that's good. I think it's good that there are powerful aggro decks, and I think there should be multiple options you can choose from if you want to play a good aggro deck. And Briar's about to leave, so it's just Fi and. I guess Dash is pretty good right now. So there's a couple options. Yeah. Uh, I think you're overlooking an important aspect of this question, though. I wouldn't flip the turtle over. And that's because how did a turtle get into the desert? They're amphibious creatures. He's way out of his league. (laughs) If a turtle's dumb enough to not only wander into this desert I'm walking through and then flip over on its back... I'm sorry, like you put yourself in this situation, Turtle. Whether or not there's a hero that's draftable in the next Flesh and Blood set or not, one way or another, you have to be responsible for your own Turtle actions here. And I can't be bailing out every single Turtle that wanders into a biome that's not congruent with its natural habitat, Michael. So, Hang uh, hang on. Are all tortoises Turtles or is it the other way around where all Turtles are tortoises? I'm not a biologist either. If... If it's a tortoise in the desert, that's where tortoises live most of the time. They're like desert guys. <laughs> no, tortoises still need water. I'm doing some Googling. Yeah, now we're doing some deep turtle tortoise research here on the fly, huh? All this is tortoises where we are in fact turtles, according to Google. So this is probably a tortoise, not a turtle. Well, it is a turtle, but not an aquatic yeah. turtle. And there are desert tortoises. That's the thing that exists. There's lots of them. That's why when you go to the zoo in the desert section, there's, Can there's tortoises, tortoises be stuck on their back? They have those big, humpy. They don't have flat shells. They have like the. They do have curved mountainous. shells. I don't know yeah. how they would get stuck on their back. Exactly. But so if you, you know, can show me, maybe, maybe <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't help. You wouldn't help the dumb tortoise that got stuck on its back somehow. Well, it doesn't say tortoise. It said turtle. A in tur- my mind, 
I didn't think I didn't go to the specifics of tortoises. I thought of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle kind of turtle turtles. Mm-hmm. But, but tortoises are it's, also it's obviously turtles. a flawed question. Then basically, okay. it needs to be specified and uh, reframed before I can really give a true answer. I think. Okay. Well, These are the I'm kind of things you look for on the LSAT, you know. If you had to identify three cards in the current card pool that you think might one day become such a problem that it has to be banned, which cards would you name? Art of War, Snatch, and anything that's a fabled is my cheating third answer. Anything that's a fable could easily be banned at one point in time. And uh, I'll get into the fable answer, but let me hear your three first. (laughs) My three were Art of War, Toma Fiendal, and Snatch. Okay, Toma Final is so, an interesting one to me. Yeah, it's it's a broken card, just not enough ways to cheat on action points to make it good yet. Is it broken? <laughs> I think so. Drawing two cards is, is 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 too good. Well, drawing two cards for a card and one resource is plus two thirds of a card of value at the cost of an action point. That's like a slight positive, but if you play from Arsenal, you're also gaining four or five life, which is like huge, right? You're getting two thirds of a card and then four or five life on top of that for maybe one action point. Yeah, but at that point, then like. It's not the card that's broken. It's action point manipulation that's broken, right? Well, nothing the card else. In the, the, card, the card in itself is fine. If you can't continue your turn after playing it. It's, right, yeah. But, so the card in itself is designed fine. I, I would argue that there are lots. Of, there are already lots of ways to play non-attack actions as instants. And I think the yeah, problem Yeah, but there's not is, a lot of ways to, like, when you're playing those cards as instants, like, most of those don't allow it to be set up in your arsenal, right? Setting it up in your arsenal is a pretty slow process. Well, my mind jumps to Spellbound Creepers. I think Spellbound Creepers plus Toma Fiendal is a very, very powerful interaction. And I think that Scabskin Leathers plus Toma Fiendal is also a very powerful interaction. And uh, what's Dash's card that gives an action point every time you boost? Accelerator. Achilles Accelerator? No, the... the Well, that is a that is strong. But the, the non-attack action that draws a card and then every time you boost, you get an action point. Is that high oh, octane? Uh, high octane, yeah. Yeah, that's very strong with Toma Fiendal. And then Chromai is also very strong with Toma Fiendal. Even Mage Master Boots is very strong with Toma Fiendal. And like all these things that are like, wow, Toma Fiendal is broken with all these things. It just like very much limits what they can do as far as giving you abilities to create action points. And there's no, there's no real. I would push back on Toma Fiendal's broken with all those things. I think it's fine with all those things. It's not okay. like, oh my God, we can't compete in this world. They played Chromai and Toma Fiendal. It's winning all the tournaments. It's broken. How do we, how do we handle this, Michael Hamilton? We need you in our hour of need. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to fight, <laughs> but like the amount of value you gain from playing a Toma Fiendal from Arsenal is like leagues above the next thing, best thing you can do with an extra action point. Okay. I guess we'll just agree to disagree on that point. But I like that we both agree on Artivore and Snatch though, because drawing cards is good and just cards that are generic pumps for all of your attacks on the turn are inherently problematic as we're seeing with like Phi needing to also ban stubby hammers and Mm -hmm. the more effects that they print that allow these like super go wide strategies. Obviously the more like a card that Art of War or general pump spells for all of your attacks on a turn become problematic. And we saw that with like Uprising where they limit, they didn't say all of your draconic attacks for the turn get plus one. It's just your first four. So it's a pretty easy way for them to like start narrowing in on the design going forward. But I think it just shows to how problematic Art of War could be. Yeah. And even like just thinking with Art of War, even jumping around, at some point we're going to get another Shadow Hero. And it was absolutely beyond broken with Shade when you banish a card and you can play that card. 
Oh yeah, and you for also sure, pump yeah. your stuff. And I think most Levia decks are playing Art of War. Levia is kind of in a weird spot. And I don't really know what Levia really looks like, but I'm pretty sure they're playing Art of War because the power of banishing a Blood Debt playable card is very mm. high. And then at some point, we're going to get another Shadow Hero, and they have to do some serious jumping through hoops to make it not good with Art of War, not broken with Art of War. I guess so far to say. Yeah, that's fair. And then I guess with the fables, um, we can kind of talk about this and their decision to change the fable into like these high-end reprints like they did with Command & Conquer in Dynasty, where if there was ever a fable that was required for like the best deck in the format, you just instantly slap a 200 to potentially like $500 extra price tag to anybody who even wants to think about competing into a format. And that just seems very problematic to me, I think just given the inherent rarity of the fables and the fact that they're so hard to come by, if any one of them ever became, like I said, just like leagues beyond like or, or required or just the best thing to be doing in the format, I think you could start seeing a major price point barrier for people to ever start playing flesh and blood and and we did see that with heartify and afterworlds it was around 400 dollars. i don't know what it's currently at but it spiked and people that want to play icelander are kind of in a rough spot of like do we spend the extra 400 dollars in this one card yeah or back when prism was viable um or i guess not looting legend a lot of people were questioning like well do i spend 200 dollars to make it so like i super never lose to old time or just like have this one really good cyborg card and obviously most of the time that was just like a question of like well do you just want a couple of extra like percentage points but like that's locking those percentage points behind a 200 one card so that just doesn't feel great to me i guess yeah i i agree i i just kind of hope that they find a way to reprint these fables that doesn't feel unfair to the people that already own them because it's like they're really cool cards and they have really unique effects but like if they're ever like even heart where it is an icelander i feel like is not good and especially since they're not printing welcome to wraith anymore if heart's still viable four years down the line or still part of a solid deck four years down the line and there's no more welcome to wraith that seems like awful yeah for sure but i guess we'll have to cross that fable bridge when we get there yeah we kind of jumped over Snatch a little bit. I want to talk about Snatch. So Go you said it. drawing cards is good. I think that Snatch just has generically the best on hits. And like at generic, there's not really anything that even has like, in my opinion, something comparable to Snatch's on hit trigger. And it is Snatch by itself is just at rate where it's a four for zero and an action point. And then four is like a pretty rough break point to block. And the fact that like you can just end your turn with snatch and also it's very good with pump spells too i think it's just like enough things that like snatch is probably going to be a part of every aggro deck going forward and i don't think it's like healthy i guess i don't know Sna- yeah i think i think there's even an argument to put it in just like a lot of mid-range decks too just because like on rate like you were talking about it's just so good and even if like all you're doing with is blocking with three cards and then just sending in a snatch for your turn, threatening to pick up an arsenal, that's like a zero cost or zero resource for power attack that is stealing you tempo or basically gaining you a resource that you wouldn't have necessarily had access to otherwise. And so like, I think there are starting to become more and more reasons to ask yourself, why wouldn't you put snatch in your deck? And that's just not a really healthy place for a card to be, for it to be like that ubiquitous. Yeah. And I I guess like jumping around a little bit, I know there's been a lot of talk about belittle minimalism, belittle minimalism, 
maybe potentially being ban worthy. And I think like the way that it restricts your deck building and the fact that it's not like you have to do some work to make it good, even when your deck building has been restricted by its effect, like you really like on top of like having these three cost things, you also need to have a way to spend your extra resources or you want to play the three power thing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not three cost, three power. I think like the card is doing things that are like inherently above rate, just like it's a six for one with go again or yeah, negative two resources for three damage with go again. And like both those are like very, very, very strong, but like you have to jump through hoops to make it happen. And I think it like promotes like interesting deck building. And yeah, I, I just, I just think it's like in a good spot rather than these other cards that are like broken and, or in my opinion, they're broken and do very broken things consistently. I guess. Sure. And like even going back to LSS's reasoning for printing Belittle Minoism is giving those aggro decks the ability to fight through these control decks a little bit. I mean, if you think about it, like without Belittle Minoism, a deck like Phi could potentially just fold to a single Frostbite on turns where it's just like, oh, well, I have no way to like get more resources and my deck is this pretty like focused attack on going wide or attacking and not focusing a lot on like generating resources necessarily i guess i have like this is frostbite or this channel like frigid is just like completely ending my entire like next two certain turn cycles for channel like frigid's case and we saw i guess like pumping our own content a little bit on the last episode of manor university Brody Spurlock was able to put together, I think, like a 14 damage turn or something like that, like a very respectable turn in the face of a channel like Frigid off of the back of a little minnowism play. And mm. it's important for him to have that counterplay or the aggro decks, I guess not just Brody, but all of us, uh, to have that counterplay against those kind of restrictive resource decks. Otherwise, you can start really pushing the teeter-totter too far in the direction of not allowing the aggressive decks to function at all in certain cases. Mm, that makes sense. Cool. Ready to move, Ready to move on to next? Yeah. So what is the argument from a game health perspective against putting more blue six power attacks? I guess this one specifically mentions brute, but I guess just in general. Uh, I honestly think the biggest concern is just like the brute. When you look at brute, there's already like a lot of auto includes that basically every brute deck plays and more blue sixes would see play over almost all the other blues because like a blue six is just like, especially a blue six of blocks three, like the current one that I can't remember the name of, but it's from Welcome to Wraith, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, just adding more blue sixes means that the brute decks are going to look more the same because they're all going to play the blue sixes because brute's thing is caring about sixes. But I think, like, I'm, I'm not convinced that's, that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's the, that is what the argument is in my eyes. I guess in my eyes, it's more so, like, we might talk about this more in a future question as well, but there's, like, a push and pull between, like, what a card is supposed to be doing in your deck, obviously, where your red cards or the cards that generate fewer resources have a higher power level to do more powerful things. And obviously cards that are generating resource are supposed to do less powerful things and not enable you to do as powerful things. And when you start bridging the gap between red cards doing powerful things and blue cards doing powerful things, overall that could just lead to a situation of like, well, now my deck is just overall too consistent all the time because there's no reason to play any reds. Like I just don't need to take that risk. And my deck is super powerful and capable of producing really good turns with just all my mono blue hands. And I think that from like a meta perspective would be like 
pretty bad for like Dex to be able to function like that. Yeah, and we kind of see that in Icelander. That's why she's so good is because like a lot of her a lot of her four blue hands are things like play an insidious chill or something, an arsenal of blue cold snap, and then I can play this cold snap and waiting when you and they're all like very efficient cards to play. And that's part of why Icelander is so strong is her resource a lot of her resource cards are very good to play. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why like in Viscerai I was just beating this drama of playing more blues in Viscerai just because like a lot of Viscerai's blue cards were just like really redundant, giving him action points and enabling all of his red cards on top of just being good resource cards and most of the time blocking for three anyways. So like the more good blues you have in the game, the more it sets the precedent for only including those cards above anything else because obviously if a card gives you the most amount of resources and very powerful effects there's no reason to add any of the other colors into your deck like there's just like you just don't need to do it yeah so i guess if we're looking at like the typical rate for blue cards like you get a three cost five or a zero cost two and in general as you spend one more resource you're getting one more power so what a a blue four cost six power be too good like if you look at like blue mulch or a lot of the blue guardian attacks would those be too would those be too powerful at generic or in brute if it's just four cost for six i don't know about that i'd have to think about that one i guess like i didn't didn't think about like raising the cost on those cards as well because like let's say in brute then like you do just have like some like this card that's just no text four cost six power attack that's uh it's it enables reinar specifically for doing things but that's only because his hero about ability specifically is based around discarding cards with six. I don't think like if we take away Reinar's hero ability and we just look at the like six power cards in himself and their payoffs, none of them are like egregious. Like Levia, it's not like Levia is an issue because she gets access to these six. But like if Levia had like more six power blue like shadow cards, would she be like super oppressive? And I don't think she would be. It's really just like Reinar's ability to just strip agency away from your opponent when you do have access to more of these resources and six power attacks that could be the problem there but i guess yeah also adjusting the cut the cost of the card in general could be a way to like fix it for like the general hero population as well i suppose yeah i think there are a couple things that having sixes at blue would be important for like if you look at sideboard cards for illusionists right now oh yeah 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 a lot of the time you're like well do i want to play this yellow six but like a blue six is a lot lower of a deck it's a lot lower cost to put in your deck where it's like this card that's very good at blocking and is also a blue card would be pretty powerful pretty powerful and then i think levia's ability just triggers off banishing a six power thing still Mm -hmm. and then like she still plays cards like bloodrush bellow that care about discarding sixes so it would help her be more consistent as well yeah that's fair okay look at that you even got rid of the edge case where i will allow it so just don't do it ever it's bad (laughs) that's what it says I wouldn't say it's necessarily bad, but especially like, I don't think illusionists, it would be too bad to play, to print a card that's pretty good against them. And if people want to sideboard their blue six for illusionists, I think that would be fine. I don't think the that's game fair. would be in a bad spot, but we'll see. Dromai hasn't been doing amazing, but I feel like she's been doing reason, very reasonable for herself. Yeah. And even if they printed this blue six now, what are you going to do when they put that super ash under their dragon and then it doesn't have phantasm more anymore because they have the super <laughs> ash under their very specific dragon. No, it's just your blue sixes are completely invalidated then, Michael. Unlucky. Yes. Then I'll <laughs> use it as a resource card. All right. Uh, moving on. Moving on. In poker, there's a saying, play the player, not the cards. In flesh and blood, how much of winning or losing is related to knowing or getting a read on your opponent 
their inclinations, or other human elements of the game. So I know this isn't a poker podcast, but I'd even push back on the first line a little bit. We're like, yeah, it was just like modern poker is all about like playing GTA game theory optimal in all situations. So like, yeah, and, uh, and there's like room to play exploitatively against opponents if you notice a behavior in them. But like, it usually like it usually takes a reasonable sample before you're ready to make deviations from GTO <laughs> against that player, and you have to like. In general, like if you just like practice and learn GTO and don't ever deviate from that, you'll still be a profitable player. So I think like <laughs> I would push even back in poker, that. we're all coming back to yeah. just look at the math. So yeah, and uh, so in flesh and blood, it's even more so just about the numbers and what you can do. Like occasionally, you look at your opponent and you're like, I don't know, like you you can kind of like read from their play patterns or something what their arsenal could be, but a lot of that is still not even reading like their facial expressions or anything. It's just like what happened in the game that led to them arsenaling the card they arsenaled. And like you can rule out a lot of cards that they would have taken a different action with if they had that card. So yeah, absolutely. that's that still feels more like reading the game state rather than reading your opponent. Yeah, I will say there is one thing that I think Flesh and Blood players are really bad at, and it's completely fixed on Talishar. And that's playing defense reactions, where most of the time in real life, people just say, no blocks go to reactions. So it's like, if I'm holding an attack reaction and I know I'm not going to have enough power to go over your defense reaction, I then now just don't have to cast this attack reaction because you have now given away that you want to play defense reaction, but I'm supposed to get priority first and it's supposed to be the onus on me to play the attack reaction. But as soon as people say, no blocks go to reactions. I think like that's like the big like that's the biggest tell in flesh and blood from like that I see consistently. Like I was just playing against I was at a Ben last night at the armory and you know he did the classic no blocks go to reactions. And I'm like, oh okay. I did I was playing Prism, so I didn't have like any attack reactions, but like I had things I could have done at instant speed to like make decisions and stuff like that. But he just volunteered the information before I necessarily would have had access to it. And like I said, that doesn't happen on Talishar because if somebody wants to play their defense reactions, you have to throw all the priority steps for them to get there first. So playing the player, not the cards or like read or tell or something like that that people do. Yeah. And I guess that is kind of reading the player, but I feel like it's also just kind of like, it's not like something that you learn from like the player's habits. It's just like something that they're trying to do, I guess. Yeah. It's like a tell, I guess. Like yeah. that's, I was kind of like giving that kind of aspect to yeah, it. That, that, that makes sense. And I'm also definitely guilty of doing that where I'll just be like, no blocks go to reactions. And I think a big part of that is I don't expect attack reactions from my opponents in a lot of spots. And I'm just like worried about time and trying to play at a reasonable pace. Cause if you're like no blocks, they're like, okay, no attack reactions. And I'm like, okay, now I'll play my defense reaction. I guess that isn't yeah. even that much longer than like no it's, 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 it's an extra work. one second of like the yeah. match time to get like just not give away critical information. Like I don't think it takes that much. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Against Dory, I'm pretty good about it. I'm like no blocks and I wait. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, against <laughs> against Dorinthia, you never want to give away your defense reaction plans. But like, I guess the main spots are like in pummel or like on razor reflex spots. But still. Yeah. All right, ready to move on? Yeah, go for it. All right. To me, I don't know who this, this is. person. To this person. <laughs> We didn't, we didn't put, we didn't attach names to our questions. So no, <laughs> to this person, anonymous. it seems like a fundamental issue of flesh and blood is that aggro is easy to design parentheses, rune blades, the rebirth of ninjas, boost stash, but control and mid range are much more difficult to make stick without them being a problem. Do you agree? And where do you think design could go for mid range slash control heroes without obvious and overwhelming power creep? Do you have any thoughts about this one? This one's a weird one. Cause I, th- I'm not, <laughs> 
I'm not exactly sure exactly what it's asking. Because like aggro being easy to design, I think if you're talking about building decks for building decks for the aggro heroes, I wouldn't really say that like it's easier than building like a starting point for an aggro deck than it is to build a starting point for a control deck. And if you're talking about like flesh and blood design like the creators, I think that in my opinion, all the aggro decks are pretty well designed. Like I am I think the Rune Blades are other than Rosetta Thorn being a little too strong. I think that Rune Blades have pretty cool design. You want to play a non-attack action and then your attack actions are better. So you try to have a good ratio of non-attacks and attacks and that like rewards you with having a very powerful aggro deck. And I think that the ninjas are also pretty cool where they have like, I think Katsu's probably more interesting than Phi where like Katsu's like these specific cards want to follow up these other cards and like mm-hmm. it's like very synergistic and stuff. And then I guess Phi where it's just like you want to have all the cards as a draconic and these care about draconic <laughs> stuff. It feels like it feels kind of like combo, but your combo, instead of being combo following a surging strike, it's combo following a draconic is less interesting. But I think like the play patterns of Fi with Phoenix Flames and I think his weapon, although it's very powerful, are like pretty cool and well designed. And then usually it's supposed to be like the rupture mechanic at the end too. So that's true. That, that's For having a lot idea. of chain links. Mm-hmm. And then Boostash is not the coolest or not the most like intricate, but like you do have this trade off of like giving up your deck and exchange for more power kind of which is like we saw with chain it wasn't like that interesting to play against where you're just like trying to hard fatigue him it's usually the counter because these decks are more efficient than you at racing because they're getting value out of their deck in a matchup that's not coming to decking out so i don't i don't really love the giving up deck cards and deck for power design of both dash and chain kind of had it but i do think they are like all like reasonably different and like interesting ideas, even if I'm not in love with the third one. Mm. Where, and then like control and mid-range being much much more difficult to make stick without them being a problem. So like the designs of like control and mid-range, I think all of them are in like reasonable spots except maybe Levia. <laughs> I think even Bolton has like a pretty interesting design where if people are trying to block with attack actions, he presents a lot of damage and he's very punishing for p- decks that want to block a lot. So if you play Bolton, it want to block with attack actions a lot, which maybe is too narrow of a space. But if you play Bullen into a deck that wants to block with three attacks every turn versus if you play Fi into a deck that wants to block with three attack actions every turn, Bullen's really going to rival out, rival Fi or probably even surpass Fi in damage output because he's getting plus one every time they block with an attack action. And I think that's like interesting design. And part of Bullen's issue is there's not a lot of decks that want to block right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And even the, and the decks that do want to block are mainly Isolator and Oldheim. And Oldheim does have a lot of attacks that he blocks with, but he also has a reasonable number of non-attacks. And then Isolator is just like all non-attacks that she's blocking with. So Yeah, absolutely. And Bolton also I, struggles against Ice. <laughs> true, yeah. Frostbites are, are quite difficult for, for Bolton to, to deal with, unfortunately. I think at the heart of this question, though, there's something that I used to really resent. It's coming from a magic background because I love control decks. I played control decks a lot in Magic the Gathering. And there was a large sense from, I guess, the more casual and newer place players, I should say, that they hated blue and counter spells and control and Sphinx's revelation and like all these ways to like draw out the game and invalidate their cards. And I think that's basically what's wrong with like over designing or making a control deck be too good i don't think we've seen this yet in flesh and blood i think so that's why i'm fine with ultimately them erring on the side of aggressive decks because it's much more fun for people to do proactive strategies than it is for 
people who are trying to do proactive strategies have their strategies completely invalidated and for them to be told to go sit in the corner while I get to do my cool thing. That's also why like a deck like Kano could be problematic because it also kind of like, while it's not like a control deck, it being a combo deck and once again, telling your opponent like, cool, thanks for attacking me a bunch with like your fire attacks. I'm going to deal 50 damage to your arcane on the stack through a really convoluted way of like building up all this arcane damage. That's not super healthy either. And I think that's ultimately the more kind of central game design theory to stick with when looking at like the prevalence of control combo and aggro. And that's why I think it's interesting that they included mid-range in this like they just they just lumped mid range right in with control because ideally like that's what you would just want the format to be you would just want every deck to be this cool interactive proactive mid range battle where people both are getting to do uh, proactive things do their own strategy without having it be completely invalidated but still having answers to like their opponents like there's like a real give and take that I feel like if they were able to like obviously somehow cover out a meta where just everything was like mid range I think like that could be like a super cool way to play flesh and blood but i don't know that's just kind of like my outside narrative coming into this question i suppose yeah that makes sense and i'm honestly not really sure what a control deck in flesh and blood is because like if you look at what people kind of think of control like icelander oldheim these decks all deal a lot of damage and are capable of attacking you for a reasonable amount like oldheim has these big attacks icelander also has these big attacks and has a lot of chip damage over the course of the game these are are these control decks are there do control decks exist in flesh and blood is hard yeah, i think the hardest control deck? control deck would just be like a hard fatigue deck right i think like the original way you used to play oldheim was like the closest we've seen to like a true control control deck you would literally just block with three to four cards every turn and if you had a card left over all you would do is swing back an icy hammer and like that's it like that's your game plan for like winning a game where you're completely invalidating the cards your opponent are playing because they just can't push through enough damage and you're disrupting them enough that they can't do their full thing and ultimately the game is coming down to them not having any cards in deck like that's just not fun for them to go through yeah that's fair i guess i guess that probably is the closest thing to control but like even then you're not really like limiting limiting your opponent's options you're like here you go play with all your cards you have your whole deck can you kill me yeah that's fair and that's not really controlling that's just like tanking i guess i don't know it's it's tanking controlling fatiguing yeah i don't know that's what it's called in this game yeah yeah there's no like Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's no like counter spell in this deck. I guess there are, but they're really weird and niche and like wizard. But like, I guess a counter spell in this game would be like a fog effect where it's just like no combat, no damage can be dealt this turn. Like that kind of, I guess like a snag. Arclight Sentinel. Arclight Sentinel is the closest thing to just like an effect like that. And that card is like, I think pretty egregious <laughs> overall in the design of Flesh and Blood. Yeah, they, they uh, priced it at six and it's still. It's <laughs> still like, okay. Like, I think that's like, if they never printed an effect like Arclight Sentinel again, it'd probably be better for the game. I would love more effects like that, but I'm also <laughs> capable of being quite the toxic control player at my heart. Um, I admit that now, but I don't think it's necessarily the best for the game. So I can, I can, I can, I'll sacrifice some amount of my personal happiness for the enjoyment of the player base at large. I'm willing mm-hmm. to do that. I guess one final touch is. You kind of mentioned that mid-range is like kind of the ideal state. And I think like that's close to where I, f- I feel like a lot of Flesh and Blood right now is kind of in that direction. They are attacking with things that are not necessarily doing a ton of damage, but if you don't block them, they represent some some other form of value, either more cards or making you lose cards or taxing you in some way. And like that is kind of where a lot of the mid-range decks are that are 
kind of more disruptive mid range, like more controlling, I guess. And then the other ones are like the ones that make it harder to block, which aren't great. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Next question. Yep. This person thinks that when you're trying to scrape out advantage for the expected value of every card, yellow pitch variants just aren't good enough. Unless you are forced into it because of some yellow matters deck building constrained Luminaris pitching or better blue options for brutes. So why? So do you, what are? I guess. So first, this isn't question, a question. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> like this a isn't really, I might have cut it off. I think it's, it goes into like what is the value of yellow cards and flesh and blood might have been the next thing. So what okay. do you think about yellows? So I think that yes, yellows are bad because they are worse at being uh, attack or proactive cards than red cards, and they are worse at being resource cards than blue cards. So yellows are in an awkward spot where they're just worse at, they're not, they're not the best at anything. They're kind of like hedging and kind of like being in the middle. And then it's interesting because there are some yellow cards that have a power level that would make sense for them to be red. Like if you look at Art of War, Tome of Fyandal, Blood Rush, Bellow, these are all yellow cards that could easily be printed out red and they'd still see a lot of play. Yeah, So, but they only come in yellows. So, so the Majestics that are yellow only are kind of weird. I guess like if you look at Arclight Sun also as another example, I'd probably see play if it was a red card. Yeah, probably that card's good. But it would be it'd be worse, but yeah, it, yeah. So it is weird that like yellows aren't really used outside of yellow only or outside of times where you're maxed on either the reds or the blues of a card. Like we, I've had yellows, autumn touches, and a lot of old time decks. But I also always, also I also always have three blue autumn touches first. Sure, and there's a couple of examples that I'll go to. There's one notable one that sticks out in my mind of a counter example to this, but. Let's go ahead. Yeah. And like yellows have niche uses, which is fine. And I'm sure some of your counter examples will be of some of these niche uses. And then there's sometimes where the yellow is like at a break point where like you don't need the red version. The yellow version is good enough. So you might as well play the card that gives you more resources. Like this was common with lead the charge back in the old days. And it shows up with captain's call sometimes now. Sure. So the most notable one is going to be the second pro tour winner briar deck of matthew folks where he specifically went out of his way to get yellow variants like snatches and some of these cards that were four power at red but three power at yellow in order to satisfy and make his little minnowism turns more consistent as well as giving his deck more resources and then i guess the other big example is then playing cards like yellow um, autumn's touch or yellow earth lore surge i think were really popular during last metas or during the like old time builds for quite a while because it allowed you to pitch a earth and an ice card at the same time in order to get the dual reactions and i think if we're looking to some like even the new room blade cards where they're like well you want to pitch two cards at once you want to be pitching a yellow and a blue ideally to play this big attack and then have enough resources to pummel and pitching those two cards at the same time is going to give you a benefit i think there's lots of design space and lots of reasons for including yellows in your deck i just don't think we've seen them all yet and to be honest with you i think they're a little bit underexplored by the player base who are obsessed with like i guess i'm guilty of it and michael's especially guilty of like obviously you know red most efficient blue most efficient in those two categories yellow's not the most efficient so get it out of here um, <laughs> but like there is something to be said about hedging and making sure your deck is more consistent overall and i can see a point where 
if yellows become powerful enough or the meta shakes out in certain ways where you don't actually want that many red cards or you don't want that many blue cards, that's where yellows will really start to shine because they allow you to hedge in those directions without having to commit to either the red or the blue. So if your deck just wants a little bit more resources, but you're mostly like a redliner deck like Bolton, for example, I think yellows are really good in Bolton. He just isn't good at pitching a lot of them to make use of library. But like most turns on Bolton, he is really good at using two resources and really bad at using three. So having blues in your deck is just kind of like wasteful at that point. So you get a lot of edges from like having yellows in your deck. And I think there will be more decks down the line where you'll start to notice like, wait a second, I actually don't need, or my deck's not good at utilizing three resources per turn, but it's really good at using two resources per turn. And once more decks start to pop up like that, like that basically turns yellows into a more viable deck considering option from that perspective as well. So I guess like that's just kind of like my scattershot idea of yellows, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I'd push back a little bit still because like when you're pitching a card for two resources then like you're not getting a full value of you're not getting a full card's worth of value out of it two resources usually isn't worth it so like like that's super interesting to me so when you pitch a blue and you spend two Mm -hmm. resources and leave one resource floating that's an inefficiency Mm -hmm. and that's part of why command and conquer is not in my icelander deck that's because there's no way to use that third resource really sure and i think like anytime you're pitching a yellow or even pitching a blue and only spending two of the three resources, you're just like losing out on a point of value. And you're probably like the cards you're playing that cost one or two resources have to be like essentially just like above rate because you're always losing value when you pitch a yellow or you float a resource and you don't have a way to use it. So like, so like that, an that, that, that's not the way I look at it though. Cause like, it's interesting to me that you're saying that though, because usually when you define like at rate, you're looking at like the cost of like the cards total used for the turn. I think like the most yeah. classic example is like, so you're pitching a blue, playing your non-attack action, your attack action for Viscerai, and then coming in with Rosetta Thorn, you're using three cards for like 12 damage. You're super efficient. Good job. Good job. <laughs> yes. But like if like those that that play pattern only required one resource and you pitched a blue to accomplish it, you're at the same rate. You're not like well, losing any extra value. What I'm saying is the cards you're playing are going to have two less points of damage value out of it if the turn sequence costs one resource instead of three resources because that's how cards are priced in Flesh and Blood. Wait, what? I'm, I'm having like, trouble following this now. So if you go like- So you're saying you're from like a card way. perspective, like they're, they're usually priced at a certain like rates, like the power of eight or whatever. Is that what you're getting at basically? Not the power of eight because the power of eight cares about blocking and some other stuff that I'm like- it, it's not really relevant, I guess. But like, if you look at a card like Vexing Malice compa- compared to Arcanic Crackle, like Vexing mm-hmm. Malice costs one more resource and does one more damage. And like, that's a pretty common pattern you'll see in Flesh and Blood cards where they cost one more resource and have one more damage. So like, if your turn cycle, you're, spe- you're playing a turn that costs one resource, then you're probably losing out on value if you're pitching a full card for that because the cards that you're playing to use that one cost are going to be less efficient than the bigger, more expensive cards would be. Yeah, there are instances where there are cards that usually cost more to do more damage, but that's not always the case. And in decks that are trying to do other things aside from maximize the individual rate of like each turn cycle, I guess like also looking at Bolton or if you're playing more of a setup hero or like like I said, like if you could just have the same turns in like Phi by not having any blues in your deck, 
what would what, like if you could still do everything Phi does in a single turn for just two resources instead of three on average, why would you ever put a blue in your deck? Well, like how would that be the case that you could have the same turns without ever needing a third resource? By having more cards that cost one or zero. Like if every single card in your deck has a preponderance of like you just you just math it out and you're like okay i can never have a turn where i spend more than two resources i'm so efficient on each one of my cards and presenting like 15 damage a turn by spending two resources why would you ever put a blue in your deck yeah like so if you can give up like mounting anger and soaring strike and play all zero for three draconic ninjas with go again like if they just had instead of having three of those cards they had like five or something or six Mm -hmm. and you could cut those and like for some reason you wanted to cut artivore also (laughs) but we get to the point where all your cards are zero for threes with go again, and then you just pitch a yellow to swing your sword if you want to. Then like, sure, but your deck is probably worse than it would be if you replaced a zero for three with mounting anger and played blues instead. I, yeah, so you're countering my counterexample with a counterexample that naturally beats my counterexample, but uh, you're kind of talking around each other at this point. But basically, I'm just saying like, there's nothing intrinsically valuable about a blue or a card as being used as a resource card if it is still allowing you to do above rate things on a given turn cycle this is just like <laughs> so hard for me to write i don't know because it's like it's like changing the paradigm by which i like view cards because i look at it as the net total amount of cards used mm-hmm. to for whatever rate you're getting instead of but you're looking at it from like total resources used and obviously you want to be getting the most resources then so then you obviously need blues because if you're not getting the most resources because then you're not efficient yeah i think i think the way you're looking at things is correct but any hand that spends two resources could be made more efficiently if it's the same hand but changing something so it's spending three resources instead of two if that makes sense no. almost any hand not every hand in the game but i was about to say every like, hand. here's my i i came up with this card it's called super command and conquer it has no on hit but it's just two resources for 14 i put it in you can have any number of them in your deck oh there's a reason this card doesn't exist I, i'm but i'm just saying in like this hypothetical yeah. example though like Wait. then there's no intrinsic reason to put blues in your deck sure sure that, that that is fair but then if they have super command and conquer for two two resources for 14 damage there's probably going to be super raging onslaught which is three resources for 15 or 16 and then what it's if, more efficient what happens if there's not? Then, then yeah you if you could fill your deck with 20 copies of two resource 14 damage then sure that's that's correct you don't need blues anymore you did it okay cool we, we agree we got but, there that is not how flesh and blood works i think the closest thing to your example is like swing big maybe where it's just two for eight which there's not really three for eights and it's a two Mm. for eight so when you're playing swing big a lot of the time it is a lot of the time the best way you could use four cards is blocking with two cards and playing a swing big so it doesn't matter whether you're pitching a yellow or a red or sorry a yellow or a blue but like if you could play a one cost go again attack like life for a life or something off a blue pitch then like you're getting five points of value off your other card a lot of the time like there's there's ways to spend the one extra resource and turn it into more value than you would get from blocking with a card okay i see what you're saying okay ready to move on yeah (laughs) okay for newer competitive players do you think it's better to invest time in getting a shallow understanding of all heroes or spend that time going even deeper on the one to two you plan on playing what do you think Okay, here I read the question and you're asking me first. Okay. Um Oh, I, so, I didn't realize you were asking me. Yeah, yeah. I was asking you the question. Oh, okay. I would say that there's some merit to like at least like looking at reading and then like 
even if just on Talishar, you just play like one game with them to see if something clicks with you. I think there's a lot of value in merit to that, just exploring the different play patterns before you like, like let's say you just like we just started the game and all we did was just like just just get the monarch heroes and then like you decided you're only going to play chain and i decided i'm only going to play bolton because those are the first heroes we picked up and that's what we're going to focus on and that's how we're going to get better at the game like that's just not like the best way to do it i think it's better to just like explore a little bit first just because of how deep and rich flesh and blood is and how intricate and different each hero's play style is i would encourage that first before committing and then like focusing on learning a particular hero yeah i i like that i that kind of advice of like kind of learning a little bit about some of the different heroes and not just sticking to the first thing you touch i think like it is okay to like just like find a hero that like resonates with you a little bit at the start and kind of focus on them and then if you see something that is interesting to you you should go check it out you should try playing with it and like you'll you'll get that from like watching games or playing games against different people even in roger in my case we played we played katsu against bolton like four or five times and i'm like i hate katsu i'm not doing this i knew he wasn't the guy for me so i went and tried something else <laughs> and that, that's when i found i'm like old time seems cool he's controlling you gotta give people frostbite you gotta pitch a blue and swing your, your hammer and it's a four with an on hit for one card that seems like something i want to be doing and so uh so I, I tried old time and I loved old time and I played old time for a while and I was pretty much had only played Katsu and old time and class constructed for a while until, until testing for the first pro tour might've been, no, I played Starvo. Yeah. But I didn't try a lot of the other heroes cause I knew like they wouldn't, they weren't exactly what I would want, what I would have the most fun playing. And I think like, if you can just look at a hero and know that they're not what you're super interested in, it's fine to just like kind of go past them and not really work on them but i also think you should just do what you want to do because it's a game and if you have fun playing your one hero that you started with the whole time then great you should just do that but i would encourage exploring or at least like looking at the other heroes and you do kind of need to know what all the heroes you could play against like at least kind of what their game plan is to play well against them and sideboard against them so like even if you like spend some time looking at a hero, learning some things about the hero and you don't end up playing them. It's going to help you every time you play against that hero in the future. So it's not like it's wasted time. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming up on quite a bit of time here. So I think I'm going to skip ahead to the last question though, if that's okay with you. Uh, okay, that's fine. Thank you very much. We'll definitely save these questions for the next mailbag episode. I don't know how often we'll do these, but we'll definitely have more in the future. And I guess for the last question then is specifically at the champ. So what is the champ's way of going about sideboarding? Uh, they believe they heard a cast about you building 80 cards cohesively and then selecting cards to pull for each matchup. But they were wondering if there are specific cards that are more often cited out and what that list may look like. Can use the world's list, so your Icelander list for reference. I think this yeah. is also a clever way of them asking for a sideboarding guide for Icelander too. <laughs> well, I don't have a sideboarding guide, but uh, in general, like if you look at my list, most most of the cards are like cards that I just like consider part of the deck and you're not like cards that get boarded out. Like you board out a lot of different cards a lot of different times. Like I board out Scar, I board out Sync, I board out Wounded Bull, board out a whole bunch of different blues. And the only one that I really like feel like I'm like, is this an energy potion matchup? That's the one that's kind of like energy potion usually out because everyone's trying to hit you and you don't want energy potions against people trying to hit you. But you do want it against like the other wizards and against old time. I like energy potions and it's good in a few spots, but not not very many. So I would consider that more of a sideboarding card, whereas everything else is just like what is it's just like part of the deck and it's just like cutting the cards that are the least efficient against certain decks. Like 
cut hypothermia against the decks that don't have a lot of added go again. You cut brain freeze against a lot of the decks that don't have zeros. But like these aren't cards that I would consider sideboard cards. They're just like part of the deck that's not good in some spots, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. So I just look at my 80 and I'm like, which of these cards are the worst against this hero and usually cut those. And then at some point we figure out if the ratios still work. And that's usually just through playtesting and feel for me. I'm not a huge spreadsheet guy. I did more spreadsheets when I was playing uh, Chain because it matters a lot more for Rune Blades what your ratios are because you have to have the critical like non-attack into attack into Rosetta Thorn. But most other heroes, the ratios don't matter as much as that. And a lot of things you can pick up on awkwardness through feel, which is like, all right, we're going to cheat a little bit and give you a little insight on the sideboarding. It's kind of how I ended up cutting Wounded Bull against Briar is because... A lot of the time, I'd have a hand of Aether Ice Fan and Wounded Bull, and I'd want to cast the Aether Ice Fan because Aether Ice Fan is better than Wounded Bull against Briar because of the embodiments block Wounded Bull so well. But Wounded Bull only blocks for two, so I was in a weird spot where I could block for two with my Wounded Bull, which is inefficient, and play my Aether Ice Fan, or I could block with for three with my Aether Ice Fan and play the Wounded Bull instead would, when I'd rather have played the Aether Ice Fan. So, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I give my perspective, but they didn't ask me. They just wanted the champs. So I want your perspective. How do you, you want my perspective? Roger? You care about what I think, Michael? Yeah. Wow, you really are my best friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a spreadsheet guy. Uh, so shout out to Travis. He gave me this awesome like spreadsheet. What you do is you have your hero. You list out all the cards on the left, on the first column. And then the next column next to that is Phi, old time you know, then you go list out all the heroes and you just go like, okay, well, I want to cut these nine cards against Phi and these nine cards against Old Time. Or actually, I only want to cut five cards against Old Time because I want to play an extra four to make sure I play around the fatigue a little bit more and I hedge and I and I just want these extra blues here because they'll also help me play around some spots. And like it's not necessarily as egregious in Flesh and Blood to play over 60 cards as it is in a game like Magic, just because of how many cards you're drawing per turn. I know you're going to push back on that um, and say you should just always play 60, but I don't mind playing. I would never play like 70 cards in a matchup, but I've, I've been known to play 65, I think is the max I'll go up to. And it might also be a player draw consideration as well. But yeah, um, and that's just what I do. I just list it all out and make sure that I know that what I'm trying to accomplish in that match is matching with the cards I'm taking in or out. So from my perspective on Icelander, I usually kind of broke it into the binary of, am I trying to play tempo in this game? Or am I trying to set up the combo at the end of the game with Frost Taxes and Ice Eternals and Insidious Chills to like go for that plan? So like if you're going for that plan, you might even want to play... So you want to play Energy Potions because they're helping you push through more damage at the end of the game when you're pushing through your combo and like you're not caring about your turn to turn efficiency necessarily like you can be more inefficient on the turn to turn cycle because you're going for this end game state that's going to make up for and push through more damage that would that will actually in the long run make it so your deck's more efficient than what it would have been on a turn by turn cycle and you see that with like a deck like bolton as well when you're playing sabers like you're doing like three damage a turn charging a card until you go off with sabers and you're doing like 35 damage a turn and you look on talishar and it's like 16 damage on average per turn you're like i did it bolton's efficient <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so i just kind of think about it like that. So like what am i trying to accomplish in the matchup and kind of like michael was saying like what are the cards that are helping me accomplish that goal and what cards aren't and you just kind of think about it like that 
Cool. Makes sense. Say your piece about 65 cards, though. Go for it. Yell at me. <laughs> I mostly picked this up when I was playing Chain, and I was trying to beat Fatigue by adding more cards to my deck, and it just made my deck worse and worse because, like, your average hand output is worse because, like, you're not drawing your synergy cards together, the cards that play well together together, and instead you're just drawing, like, extra kind of junk or clogged hands that don't work as well. And at some point, there will be, like, the best 60 cards for the matchup, and putting in other cards can give you extra outs, but a lot of the time, in my opinion, that just ends up worse than just playing 60 cards because you're less likely to draw your powerful synergies together i think the reason why i'm okay with it against oldheim or the guardian specifically i guess mostly mostly against oldheim i don't like it against bravo as much because of the dominate effect but you're going to spend some turns where you'll look at your hand and you'll be like okay they're attacking me with a spinal crush and i can't function like my hand just doesn't work <laughs> if the spinal crush hits me so i have no choice but to inefficiently use three cards on defense or whatever and then arsenal this last card and that turn cycle is going to come up obviously a handful of times throughout the game and at that point you're like you're being way more card inefe- inefficient than old time and that can get you to like those late game states because you've had to be more card inefficient on blocking and preserving life than old time had to be on those key turn cycles also because like old time is able to mitigate so much damage without having to block through cards like crown of seeds a zero ability and things like that that mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense to put in just a, like a few more extra cards to hedge against like that super late game fatigue so that you can have more functional turns on average when he allows you to but there's just going to be some amount of turns where you just aren't going to be able to keep your efficient four-card hand in your 60-card deck just because of the nature of what he's doing as a hero. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think I would fight against that. I'm not sure that the value you get from having like enough cards to have one or two extra turns is worth diluting your game plan. But like the logic of, hey, I'm going to get Spinal Crush, I'm going to lose three cards when I get Spinal Crush, and that's going to happen several times in in an average game that you would just want extra cards because you might not have enough to get across the finish line without that 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 does make sense i yeah so yeah and i don't think every hero should be doing it i think it's once again based on like your game plan like if you think that the game's gonna end one way or another before you even like if you're fi i don't think there's any reason why fi should play like 65 cards in old time because like you're just never looking to block that much in a game. But if you are looking to do some amount of blocking and play a little bit of a longer game against old time, I think it's a reasonable hedge, but it's a little bit contextual, I guess. Cool. All right. Ready to wrap things up? I think I'm all ready. Do you have any final words for our listeners, Michael? Uh, I guess let us know in the comments what you thought of the mailbag episode. I thought it was pretty fun just like having a bunch of your questions to answer and it's kind of like a nice way to do it and talk about it with Roger instead of one of us just like trying to answer questions. I think it like was it was a fun discussion for me. So if you guys liked it, I would like to do another episode like this again. What do you think, Roger? Yeah, I had a good time too. Cool. And I am not so pie in the sky, big headed, big egoed to not thank everyone for supporting our channel. Blown away about the discord how much how many people have hopped in there makes me so happy to see people play testing games without michael and i just the community growing awesome to see everybody who's supporting us on patreon right now way i can't believe the amount of support we've gotten since we've kicked that off like it's beyond anything i could have ever imagined i know michael was expecting it but uh, <laughs> that's not true <laughs> i am just so thankful to everybody and also everybody who just listens i think we just crossed over 600 subscribers on youtube 
Um, the audio only podcasts are crushing it as well. So it really is motivating me to keep making the awesome content that we do. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. Yeah, that's, that's really sweet. I wanted to actually talk about that on the last episode, but we had a guest on and then it seemed like there was ever a good spot. And then I forgot about it this time, but thank you everybody. I am also similarly blown away by how much support we've gotten. And I've had, I've seen a lot of people talking in the discord, which is great. And we got almost all these questions were through the discord. And also I've had my first few coaching sessions, which have been really good too. And I've enjoyed working with just members of the community and it's great. And yeah, thank you everybody. Yeah. And we added a new perk for our patrons as well. Uh, Michael and I are going to be doing a live stream where we're just going to be battling a whole bunch and talking through our plays and just kind of hanging out with the community, kind of like a hangout slash uh, watch and learn session. Uh, that's going to be this Friday on December 2nd at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So that'll be a good time and looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that just about wraps us up. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, next time you're playing Flesh and Blood, always remember to remember the remembering of minding your manners. Thank you for listening. <laughs>